Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You're tuned in for another remarkable episode on 98.3 The Vibe. You're tuned into The Image Show, and we've got a lot of flavor, one hour of power all morning long throughout this show. We're going to start off with a community leader who is joining us by phone in Fort Dodge, Iowa. And her name is Sherry Washington. Sherry is the president and founder of the Pleasant Valley Awareness Committee. She is also the human rights commissioner for Fort Dodge. And she is the NAACP president for the Fort Dodge, Iowa chapter. Sherry Washington, it is a pleasure to have you on the Remarkable Image Show. Why, thank you. Thank you, Bobby. It's a pleasure and an honor to uh, be on the show. Uh, So thank you very much. All right. Now, you see that I gave you uh, all your titles as I was introducing you. I understand that. uh, So I I named you as uh, the president and founder of the Pleasant Valley Awareness Committee. You're also the human human rights commissioner for Fort Dodge. And you are the NAACP president for the Fort Dodge, Iowa chapter. Is that correct? Yes. It's for the NAACP chapter. Uh, We are in the process of rechaptering our Fort Dodge uh, chapter. And it's been an awesome time reaching out into the community and building back up the membership so that we can hopefully be rechaptered uh, here pretty soon. So, of course, NAACP is a wonderful um, chapter. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. And so we are really looking and anticipating uh, rechaptering here really, really soon. Absolutely. And, you know, Miss Washington, I must say, due to all the violence that's been taking place in Fort Dodge. I know that uh, you have been a part of the solution and you've been involved with programs. uh, You've founded programs that actually keep you involved in helping and being a part of the solution. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Uh, Yes. Over the years, uh, we have seen an increase in different activities through the community And um, a lot of it is communication for some and uh, others uh, maybe just not being connected. Maybe there's a misunderstanding with some things that may have happened. Other individuals may consider it to have been a disrespect. And because there was no communication, uh, the outcome would come out a little violent or um, a little undesirable. So we've seen a lot of that here in the community. And uh, that's where community uh, can help uh, with some of these situations, reaching out to our youth, uh, getting them involved, uh, being an ear for them, giving them activities, uh, positive things that they can use their talents um, with. There's a lot of youth who are really talented in our community, but they don't feel as they can apply their talents because they don't know where to take them or what to do with them. So that's part of what our committees uh, here in Port Dodge are trying to do is uh, to reach our youth and uh, some of the folks who feel that they may not have a place to place their talents. Sure. That's good. And I tell you, Sherry, it is nice to finally have you on the Image Show. You're a very special person, a great community leader, and you have so many wonderful talents. 
Oh, my, Bobby. I mean, you're going to make me cry over here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's okay. Well, you know, thank it, you. You know, I, I can't say that it's me. It's all of us together, you know. Um, sure. Our parents who raised us, our family, it takes, it takes a village uh, to be able to do these things. So when you have your family, you have your friends, you have the support systems, you have your churches, you have your organizations, um, all those ingredients make us into what we are today. So I have to give thanks and praises to each and every one uh, who's lifting our community so that we're able to be a part of the solution and to help the community. That's good. So, Sherry, I've got a question. I know that you have a passion, uh, just because I know you personally, for what you do. Can you tell me a little bit about where your passion to want to help people developed? I mean, where where did you uh, develop that? You know, where did it come from? Well, it all stems from Fort Dodge being my my hometown. So uh, being my hometown, uh, you know the folks here that live here. Uh, the community is like a family. So when one family is affected, all of us are affected. Uh, when one person hurts, we all seem to hurt. So for me, um, being able to be an olive branch to reach out and help folks in a time of need is what we were raised to do. So I think it's generational for me. Um, When we were growing up, that's what our families did. Um, When there was a tragedy or something going on in the community, everyone gathered together and they helped. So I think that was instilled in me. Well, I know that it was instilled in me uh, from, from our parents and from the communities and from all the folks who the shoulders that we stand on today who paved the way for us. So I think they rooted that into us as young folks, and uh, we're just carrying it on. Well, that's great, Miss Washington. And I've got uh, some more questions here, but I want to kind of start off by talking about reentry. As we all know, reentry is a huge topic right now around the world. And I've always said, I've been famous for this quote uh, how can a person really understand or even teach reentry if they have never experienced it? Now, note when I say experience it, this doesn't mean that you have to be a felon or you have to have been to prison or you know a former inmate. But I believe that you must have some kind of connection or affiliation with jail, prison, law, justice, and the economy that you live in. And it all runs hand in hand. I mean, I feel that it all runs together. And you can't have one without the other. That's just the first step. Then you must have a passion to be a part of the solution. Now, this is where it really gets tricky, Miss Washington, because, you know, we see so many people that are yelling reentry that are in on all these different committee boards and you know there's all these different grant money that's circulating and of course people want to jump on board but you know when i say passion i mean your heart should be conditioned to love justice and justice for all i i think that your heart should be filled with love not hate And, you know, this is what makes the Image program so special. This is what makes First Friday so special. And I just always have 
you know, a convers. I always feel like there needs to be a conversation on passion when we talk about reentry. Yeah. Definitely, and I agree with that um, because most of the folks that we know um, who may have their uh, voting rights uh, revoked, um, their their family, you know, they may be friends, they may be acquaintances in the community. So when you know some of the folks and you know who they are and you know who their where their roots are, and they may have made some wrong decisions along the way, turning your back on them and not giving them another chance isn't the the answer. Um, you know, uh, when someone falls down, help them get up. You know, that's what we were. That's what we do. You know, and uh, if you want to throw a little Christianity in it, that's what we're rooted in as well. So our faith is what teaches us that, and uh, that's another part um, of what I do. Is um, I make sure that I give God His time because it's, I'm unable to do all these other things in the community if I haven't given Him His time first. So with all the other titles and all the other hats that we may wear, uh, we have to always base it on faith. That has to be the foundation. So and with that foundation, that's where your love comes from. That's where your peace from, comes Amen. from. And that's where, um, that's where you should root from. So no one ever said it was going to be easy, you know, because this life is not easy. However, if you build your foundation on peace and love and faith, then you'll never go wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's how I look at things because we all make mistakes. We all have uh, things that we may not have been proud of or uh, may have made a mistake growing up or those are just some of the bumps, bumps in the road that you will make and that some of us do make in our lives. But your past should not define you. Amen. And I'm glad that you put the the spiritual part in there, the Christianity. I mean, uh, for me, it's Christianity. Obviously, for you, it is, too. Uh, however, if a, a person, you know, w- whatever denomination that they are, you know, I don't like to discriminate. However, I do feel that there has to be a higher a higher power involved. And uh, for me, you know, I'm so thankful every day I wake up that I'm yeah. free. Uh, you know, I mean, there's there's no weights that's holding me down, you know, uh, there's nothing connected that's pulling me uh, away from the goal that I'm trying to reach. I mean, those things are real important in this life uh, to be able to be healthy. You know, you look at all the, the sickness and disease that's going on around our country, around our world, around our state. And a lot of this comes I truly believe uh, with the the thoughts and the minds and the depressions and uh, emotions that take place inside a person's mind and heart. And so, uh, you know, as I talk about reentry, you have to remember those that are still incarcerated, those that have been uh, locked up unjustly. Those that uh, have served a certain amount of time, got out, and now all of a sudden they have mental problems. You know, there's a huge avenue that comes with reentry. And so uh, I want to know, what is it that you guys are doing with the NAACP in Fort Dodge as it relates to reentry? Or, or with any of your, your groups 
there for that matter, your programs? Yes. Well, with NAACP, because we're not uh, fully chaptered yet, uh, we have not put any works in under the NAACP umbrella. Um, However, um, those are things that we will plan to do in the future uh, once once we're rechaptered and that's reestablished. However, through our Pleasant Valley Awareness Committee, we give uh, folks a chance to to join in in the community uh, for their voices to be heard. Uh, So we may have uh, community dinners with open mics. Um, We have um, uh, community dinners next door to uh, the halfway house there in Port Dodge. So the folks can come over on Sundays and they can uh, enjoy a meal uh, with with the community folks, as well as they're able to um, get up and speak. The open mic is open for anyone to speak, anything on their mind. And uh, then it also is a place of refuge, uh, so the church is there. And I feel that uh, until you, until no one, everyone has their own story, and until you've been through things, that's when you'll have a testimony. So you can't have a testimony without a test. So those are the things that we try to um, tell folks, you know, yes, you've been through something, but let that be your testimony. You know, bring the bright side around, you know, so look at where you are now today. Look at the opportunities that are uh, presented to you. And uh, what you do going forward is on you, you know, so now those opportunities are there. Now you have the advantage. Take advantage of it and make the best you that you can do. We're going to go to a real quick commercial, and when we come back, we're going to speak more with Sherry Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned into The Image Show on 98.3 The Vibe. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on The Image Show. We've got Sherry Washington with us, and she is speaking a little bit about reentry, a little bit about uh, changes and programs that's going on in Fort Dodge, Iowa. And so, uh, Sherry Washington, uh, again, it's a pleasure to have you with us on The Image Show, and we're getting into some nitty-gritty here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the programs that you're involved with as it relates to uh, the Pleasant Valley Awareness Committee? Yes. Well, uh, the Pleasant Valley Awareness Committee, we organize the uh, the committee uh, with our community folks in Pleasant Valley, which is known as uh, the Flats. Okay. (laughs) For those that are from Fort Dodge. The Flats, the Dirty Flats. Everybody knows about the Flats. Yes, yes, yes. So Pleasant Valley (laughs) is AKA the Flats. I've I've had a lot of experiences down there in the flats. (laughs) I'll never forget that place. You got Blast Blast Avenue. uh, (laughs) What did they name them? Crack Avenue, Blast. (laughs) (laughs) You know, over the years it became that, but growing up, it truly was a pleasant valley. Um, sure. It was very diverse. Uh, it was very family oriented. So uh, back then, you know, you respected your elders, you know. Uh, you could see kids out in the yards playing and uh, riding their bikes and playing at the basketball courts or playing baseball and running up and down the streets. You know, so those are the memories of my childhood that I remember um, back in, in our day. But 
like in like a lot of other cities, um, when you hit the the 1990s, uh, a lot of things changed. You know, so a lot of drugs came in. Um, a lot of um, the housing was different. Sure. So uh, a lot of changes uh, came. You know, not just in Fort Dodge, but in a lot of cities. Um, I think can relate to to the changes that happened over the years. So with Pleasant Valley Awareness, there was a, a rash of crimes that were going on uh, in the city. And uh, some of the children or the folks that were involved, um, they weren't from Pleasant Valley, but the the ending results always ended up in Pleasant Valley. Uh, they could be from the north side of town, but when the final incidents happened, it trailed down into Pleasant Valley. So after um, things started to snowball and and they just became very numerous and there was uh, always something going on every week or every day you would hear of something that was going on in the community. Um, my thoughts were, hey, you know, everyone's talking about it, but no one's doing anything. No one's taking any action to um, find out what's going on with these children or find out why these things are happening or how we can come together to do something to prevent anything further from happening. Uh, so I reached out to um, our mayor, uh, Matt Brimrick, who is a very, very, very good uh, mayor. Um, I have to say he really is because under his uh, time, um, that uh, he's been seated uh, as a mayor, a lot of great things have happened uh, in the African-American community under his watch. So uh, one of those things is uh, Pleasant Valley Awareness. Um, so uh, we had a conversation with um, with uh, our city officials and our mayor uh, in regards to starting Pleasant Valley and uh, connecting our city officials with our community in Pleasant Valley uh, to make some changes. So working together with our city councilmen, with our mayors, with our uh, city supervisors, with our um, our parks director, and just some of the city folks to try to um, to uh, change around the image that uh, Pleasant Valley was spiraling down into. Uh, so out of those uh, conversations, um, one thing there, and I'm sure that you can probably have a, a memory of this, Bobby, was uh, the, the mini park. Yeah. With the basketball court. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. the, where the uh, is that where the hoopla, the tournament was? Ho- the, the hoopla. Bas- yeah, the basketball y- yes. tournament. Yes. Yes. Well, back in the day, um, you know, uh, we had some pretty decent equipment. Uh-huh. Park equipment, and over the years, um, it wasn't really updated um, as much or as often as uh, some of the other parks in the city, and uh, so that was uh, a big complaint uh, throughout the community that uh, the children didn't have the parks that we had back then to to enjoy as far as equipment and different variety of things went um, so let me at ask, the park. So. Okay, so let me ask you, do you think that because, you know, we don't have a lot of these things that have been kept up, like parks, do you think that that has an effect on the youth and uh, prison and well, recidivism and all that kind of stuff? 
Well, it did when we asked the community what they wanted. Uh, they wanted a decent park. They wanted um, an update. So um, that's one thing that Pleasant Valley, well, that was one of the first uh, projects that we worked on, uh, was to get the park updated with new equipment. And we were able to do that, um, I think, two years ago, as well as renaming the park, because it was the only park in town that did not have a name. It was just, uh, it went by the name Mini Park by default, because it was on the corner and it was a mini park. So that was another thing that we worked on was uh, renaming the park and um, renamed it after uh, Harry Merriweather, um, one of the first African-American entrepreneurs who did a lot of work in Pleasant Valley. Well, that's good. So, That's good. That's good. Go ahead. I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Keep talking. No, 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 no. So that, so you are correct. Yes. Uh, the community did feel as though, um, you know, they didn't have a place to go. And when they went to the park, you know, they didn't play on anything because they felt it was old and, and needed updated. Sure. And so, uh, you know, I can remember when I lived in Fort Dodge for a couple of years, I was there, and it seemed like there was just not enough role models for the youngsters there. Uh, of course, I wasn't a role model when I was there at that time, and, uh, you know, I just, I feel like, uh, you know, if there were people that, you know, some of those youngsters could have looked up to, it could kind of help well, it could help in a major way. I, I know that you have like the APHIS program and Charles Clayton, yeah. you know, he's a, a great yeah, he's positive awesome. male. Yeah, he's a great positive male role model. And yes. you're a great uh, positive female role model. But it seems like there's just not enough, you know, I mean, there's not enough activity that goes on there to to kind of create yeah. that that spunk for people to get out of the house and find something real positive to do. Yes. Well, that's what we try to continue to do is, uh, to build events throughout the year, um, to, to, uh, give people a place to go and to, uh, uh, give them also an opportunity to, uh, get involved and to be active. The most recent would have been, um, our black history program uh, that we had at Second Baptist Church um, on the 9th uh, this month, yeah, this, a few weeks ago. And uh, so one of our guest speakers was uh, Representative Akhil Abdul-Samad uh, from Des Moines. Sure. So, oh, yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he came down and he was one of the guest speakers and uh, Charles Clayton was one, but he was, uh, he got caught with some weather in Minneapolis or Minnesota, excuse me. And uh, so he wasn't able to attend, but we had a lot of great uh, speakers um, who spoke on the program. And we also had um, a singer who came from the recovery house um, here in Fort Dodge and did the uh, musical selections. Uh, he has a very blessed voice, and um, so we he was part of our Black History program, and uh, he was uh, his role in it was uh, the entertainment uh, to do the singing. So he did a lot of great Sam Cooke songs, and um, that was a way of getting him involved. So, well, that's good. It sounds like then you've increased the programming and, and things like that there. So that's yeah. good. Uh, Sherry, 
you know, I want to just say thank you again for coming on, taking your time this morning to speak out about what's going on down there in Fort Dodge. I know that for a minute there was a, a string of shootings and, uh, yeah. you know, just a lot of violent behavior. And I, I was trying to think, man, where did that come from? You know, it seems like yeah. it's all over the place now. Well, you know, I think parenting has changed um, also. Uh, back in the day, you know, uh, you had to sit at the dinner table. You know, um, you had chores. You had things um, besides just your cell phones and computers and and all those different things that they have today. You know, back then, um, parenting was a little different. And nowadays, not saying that the parents are horrible, but uh, just saying that we're so busy with so many other things that sometimes children feel uh, neglected or just not as active as they should be. So they kind of fall into some of the ruts of what's going on out there in the streets, and then it spills into what you hear on the news. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate what we hear on the news. You know, you always want to hear positive stuff. Seems like there's nothing but negativity that you hear on the news. It, it really is, and uh, that's where uh, the adults and, and the churches, you know, the churches, that's where the outreach happens. Um, uh, you have to get out into your community and, and reach out into your community and let them know that the doors are open and uh, and that we understand that none of us are perfect, you know. No one can cast the first stone. Uh, so that's what our church, Second Baptist, um uh, uh, tries to uh, portray in the community is, uh, hey, we're just like you, you know. Um, you know, the church is a hospital for sinners, you know. So, you know, you come Amen. on in here. We, we, we aren't perfect at all. We're far from perfect, you <laughs> know. Right. And uh, everybody everybody has a story, you know. And uh, God can't do nothing with no perfect folks. So if you're perfect, then you, you, you know, then, uh, then I don't know where you're supposed to be, but uh, it ain't over here. That's right. right. You know, uh, speaking of of church, uh, I want to, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you out there tuning in right now, I want you to know if you could please send a prayer out there to Judge Witt. He's a Polk County uh, magistrate judge, and he is now undergoing, uh, I believe it's uh, final stages of cancer. And so I hope I haven't misspoke wrongly, but I know that he is is very ill right now. And so I just got that message yesterday. And so I just ask that we all pray for Judge Witt. Uh, I believe in miracles. And so I believe that, you know, prayer moves mountains and I've seen it. uh, I've witnessed it. I've been a part of it. And so uh, I want to... uh, I want to have a prayer for for Judge Witt. Uh, He was on the Image Show a while back. Uh, He donated his time. He was a wonderful guest, and you know, my heart just goes out to people that are you know sick like this. I mean, this cancer is just a demon. Yeah. You know. Yes. So, Sherry, let's take a minute and uh, just just have a quick prayer for for Judge Witt and all of those who are battling cancer. And these uh, catastrophic diseases that are uh, taking over our country. So uh, let's just pray. Uh, Dear Lord, gracious Father, I thank you, first of all, for the image show. I thank you for uh, the people that are listening, 
dear God, we pray and we just lift out our hands for all the people that are sick, that are uh, undergoing cancer and illnesses, dear Lord. Uh, we pray that you give it all back to the devil where it comes from, dear yeah. God. And we ask that you heal our judge, Judge Wit, and we ask yes, that uh, you bring him back into the, the chamber's office uh, where he is able to practice uh, in his calling, dear Lord. And for all the other people out there right now that are sick, Lord, we just ask for your mercy and your favor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All yes, right. And we, and we ask that God will continue to keep his hands on you, Brother Bobby. Um, we're so proud of you and so happy for what you're doing uh, for our community and uh, for each and every one. So um, uh, you're one that wears a lot of hats as well. And uh, we're going to ask God to continue uh, to keep you. And to keep his uh, his loving arms uh, all over you. So thank you so much, Sherry. And I appreciate okay. you coming on the Image Show this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we are going to go to our next guest. For now, we're saying it's been fun, but we got to run with <laughs> Sherry Washington. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was an honor and a pleasure. Thank no, you. No problem. We're going to go to a commercial. When we come back, we'll have our next guest. Hey, this is Sweezy, the producer of The Image Show. Bobby asked me to cut together a couple highlights from the interview that Judge Colin Witt did when he was in here. We wish him the speediest recovery and hope he gets well. Here's a little bit from Judge Witt. And we're back on The Image Show. We have a special guest with us now, Judge Colin Witt. Polk County Judge, and uh, Judge Witt, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you in the studios this morning. Thanks for having me, and I'm pleased to be here. Now, Judge Witt, uh, I have a bundle of questions that I would like to ask you. Uh, first of all, I give uh, much respect to you as a judge, uh, because in my eyes, you are one of the passionate judges who has a big heart and uh, looking to do the right thing. And I just want to kind of start off, uh, you have some different programs uh, that you're involved with. One I know uh, called or dealing with incarcerated parents. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It started about a year ago with a grant through a program called Iowa Children's Justice, and that is a Supreme Court uh, entity, and it's in partnership with the Drake Legal Clinic. And in essence, we have uh, known and really identified for a couple of years that in the child welfare system, we have many folks that we're working with who are incarcerated either in a county jail or in our prisons. And um, the attorneys who are appointed to represent them as parents in the cases concerning their children literally don't always do a great job of going to see their clients in the prisons. They really don't have uh, a lot of experience in working with the Department of Corrections, and they don't always do a great job of helping work with relatives and uh, do things. And so about a year ago, the Drake Legal Clinic uh, in particular has taken this on, and uh, an attorney named Jamie Hagemeyer, in conjunction with Brent Pattison, are overseeing it, and they are representing parents who are incarcerated intentionally, and they are developing resources, and they are doing trainings statewide with DHS workers, Department of Corrections officials, to 
try and do things like have more visits for incarcerated parents with their children and to reconnect them with their families. And um, I heard today, actually, that as of next week, they'll have trained nearly but not quite a thousand different professionals this year uh, with some uh, experiential training to try and let them know what it's like to walk in the shoes of an incarcerated person who's dealing with the Department of Human Services and some of the challenges they face and some of the reasons why it's good to keep kids connected with their parents while they're incarcerated. And we're really trying to break down some walls and improve some things and some outcomes for kids and for families uh, in difficult situations. So we've, we've <clears throat> there's been some case law in the last few years that's changed or at least reinvigorated the need for um, this service and for this to be done differently and to take a different view and not just write off parents who are incarcerated. Okay. And <clears throat> Judge Witt, in dealing with the uh, restorative justice, uh, what involvement do you have in that? Well, I'd like to think that I've been doing mostly exclusively juvenile court work for nine years, and most of that is, oh, about 70 to 80 percent is working in child welfare cases, and then another 20 to 30 percent is working with kids in delinquency. And I like to think that we do a lot with restorative justice and trying to uh, keep families together and work to make families whole and to keep kids safe and, quite frankly, to be as uh, light on the punitive side for kids as possible. So we've done a lot of things. We try and monitor our detention center. We try and use um, tools that are designed to be race neutral and or to be explicitly acknowledging the disproportionality that we have. Uh, because if you go to our detention center at any given time, about 70% of the kids there are going to be youth of color, um, almost without a doubt. And so we try and monitor that and do things to change that. And we're trying to to, to do some things. Another restorative justice policy, the Iowa Supreme Court a little over a year ago adopted a rule that said kids as a rule should not be shackled in the courtroom. And um, we're implementing that. I believe in Polk County, we're close to, uh, if not at a 90% fidelity rate to that, that kids are not being shackled in the courtroom when in the past they would have been. And uh, that's a big difference. It shows it's a move towards dignity. It's a move towards respect. It's a move towards saying that these kids that may have law enforcement contact and they may they may not be able to be safe in the community at, at that time, but they're not being treated as little adults and having shackles on their legs and their arms while they're in the courtroom. And so we're trying to show them more dignity and respect and listen to them through that process. I see. Judge Witt, I have, uh, I have many questions, but I guess my next question that I wanted to know is when a defendant is judged or uh, say he's found guilty and the verdict is ready to be, or, or no, the, the judgment or the sentencing is ready to be handed down. Does a judge look at the crime that was committed? Do they look at the uh, interest of justice? Do they look at the support that an inmate or that a defendant had? I mean, what factors are considered before a judge actually makes his final ruling on a guilty uh, or sentencing uh, verdict? 
Well, there <clears throat> you'll see it, and judges are required in a case such as what you were talking about, Robert. You know, when 50 years is at issue, there's going to be a pre-sentencing report. And so, you know, that document should contain a lot of information regarding the offense itself. That document should contain uh, a lot of hopefully mitigating factors as to that. And I would hope that it contains a lot of uh, information regarding the support that the defendant has and a consideration of whether a community-based sentence is appropriate or a sentence of incarceration is appropriate comes to play. You know, there is no one way that any judge looks at what factors, you know, and community safety is always going to be at the forefront of any judge's decision. Is there a belief that the individual sitting before you is going to continue to do uh, crimes in the community, especially crimes that may affect um you know, violence or immediate community safety. That's always going to be at the top of the list. There's actually an ongoing debate right now, and the Supreme Court of Iowa has pending before it a couple of important decisions about what affects sentencing. And one of the most important things is recently, and this is just in the last few years, there's a new risk assessment tool that brings science into sentencing decisions. And persons that are being sentenced are being graded out as high risk, medium risk, or low risk, and that's affecting whether people are going to prison or not. And it's debated right now, and it's going to be decided as to whether that scientific tool is validated and whether it's going to be accepted and allowed to continue to be made uh, a real part of the sentencing process. But I will tell you that I think the science end of it is really geared towards addressing things like racial disproportionality. And it's really geared towards bringing some, some neutrality and some different factors beyond just which judge you get to it. And so that issue is currently up on appeal. And it's been a, it's a, that's a hot issue across the nation. Because there's a part of it that when it comes to sentencing, that, that that really seems like a good idea and is a good idea. But if you you also don't want to make sentencing be the same for everybody or formulaic. And so let me take you back a little bit. The federal sentencing guidelines in the 1980s uh, came into play in which judges were given less discretion in federal court for sentences. And that's why you saw extreme sentences in federal court uh, through the 80s, 90s, and really into the early 2000s, where judges' hands were tied. And if you were getting sentences based on weight of drugs, and, you know, I represented people in federal court when I was a lawyer, uh, some of whom would get things like a 30-year sentence based on the quantity of drugs, even though they were not at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. And sentencing guidelines where everybody gets the same that's not good. Trust me, it doesn't work. You need to have discretion to treat the individual and give them what they need and protect society from what they need. And so judicial discretion really is important. And things like mandatory minimum sentences and things like that, you know, if you'll talk to most judges, they feel when they feel their hands are tied by those things, it becomes very difficult. Okay. And uh, thank you for that. That's extremely valuable information, and I uh, appreciate uh, your uh, being honest with me. Now, Judge Witt, I also have another question. Um, Paid lawyers versus court-appointed lawyers. It seems so apparent that if a defendant has a paid lawyer, uh, he gets much more justice than one that has a a court-appointed lawyer. Now, I understand this doesn't always isn't always the case. But why is it that money would determine the justice that a human being gets? Well, let me challenge you on that just a little bit. Okay. And what I mean by that is, for example, in federal court, 
the Federal Public Defender's Office, they're some of the best lawyers I've ever met. In fact, one of my mentors was a gentleman named Nick Drees, who was the Federal Public Defender. He passed away about seven years ago. He's one of the best lawyers I've ever met in my life. I agree. Now, wait a minute. I agree in the federal system, okay. but at the mm-hmm. state level. At the state level, what I'll tell you is I know many public defenders. In fact, I'm yet to meet one who doesn't enter the profession for the right reasons, with the right heart, wanting to be about individual rights, about standing up for impoverished persons, and for really being going to bat for the underdog. What happens is the caseloads become so high, and they get overburdened, and they're just not able to give as much attention and time. It's kind of a bedside manner issue. They can't visit their clients, whether they're in jail, as often as they'd like. They can't spend as much time investigating the cases as much as they want, because they have voluminous caseloads and especially as a public defender. And I understand that. So my question is, knowing that their caseloads are overbooked, where is the determination factor that, hey, one can't be treated unfairly just because he or she has a lawyer that uh, has an overloaded caseload? I mean, when you're dealing with justice, you're dealing with people's lives. I mean, shouldn't this go into some kind of factor that we have to do something about this or so i mean and you have to think about the public defense system in our country too it only dates back you know really less than 60 years and that dates back to the gideon case in the 1960s from the u.s supreme court prior to that time we really didn't have you know you had a right to public defense in the the amount of cases that now exist basically anything above a simple misdemeanor you can have a court-appointed lawyer if you qualify from the from your amount of income and the financial affidavit that you have you know it's an issue it's an issue that judges know about it's an issue that prosecutors know about it's an issue in the state system more than it is in the federal system and i agree with you our if you're a private attorney and you take state court appointments so you're appointed to represent someone and one of the public defender offices is unavailable you get paid sixty dollars an hour that's been the same rate for more than 25 years um, it hasn't been raised and so well and so one thing i'm noticing is that some of these court-appointed attorneys who have overloaded caseloads they're just rushing through to get to the next case and while they're doing that someone is being treated unfairly now what does an individual do about that every individual has the right to hire their own attorney if they're able and if they're not they're able to ask for a new attorney from the judge and indicate they don't believe they're receiving adequate service. And every judge has addressed that issue uh, many times. And in terms of an individual case and in terms of the system as it currently exists, you know, those are your options right now. In terms of the greater, how this problem continues, problem gets addressed and how we can provide it, it has to do with you know, legislative funding, it has to do with other things associated with caseload counts and saying, you know, no lawyer should have more than X number of cases, whatever can be fairly managed based on, you know, if you're handling a misdemeanor docket, that's very different than if you're handling a class A felony docket. You know, somebody handling a class A felony docket is going to have fewer cases because it's going to be impossible to do more than, you know, very many cases. And so it's a, it's an ongoing issue. But what I would say is public defenders, for the most part, they do care and they just can't all always show it to each individual client, or perhaps it can't be received in that same way. And I understand that as well. 